welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie. How is everybody doing today? Doing great. Valentine's Day. Oh, I didn't even realize it's Valentine's We were recording on fucking Valentine's Day. I know. I know. This corporate hallmark holiday doesn't mean shit to me. <laughs> doesn't mean a goddamn thing. I mean, people probably already know this, but it originally comes from like a Roman holiday that involves torture and rape, basically. Totally. It's a sadomasochistic uh, holiday. It's really yeah. interesting. It's like there's a part of the original Valentine's Day celebration where uh, Roman men were allowed to just like basically play like spin the bottle, like whatever they would do back then. <laughs> and then like whoever the bottle like landed on, it was like we're like hooking up like they, and like they didn't have a choice. You know, it was just like a. Basically, it's like a sex slavery game. <laughs> and then they would throw the woman into the alligator pit after. No, just oh, really? I, no, I just made that up. <laughs> yeah, the Ro- Roman times are, it's like the most crazy era ever. Like the vomitoriums, you know? The, yeah, we hear so much. It's a lot of like mi- mixture of like myth and yeah. reality that kind of collides. And probably the only like film or anything I've seen that tries to like represent that was is the movie Caligula. Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. Oh, it's fucking crazy. It's it was made I I want to say it was made by like a porn director or it was made by someone from the porn industry who was like somehow like a penthouse, like high up penthouse person. And it's ba- it's Malcolm McDowell from Clockwork Orange playing Caligula, the Roman emperor, and just like doing the most hor- horrendous things like torturing and killing human beings with like these crazy like machines on the wall raping like a like a husband's like wife in front of him like just like in their kitchen table for like disobeying him like all just all this crazy shit that like you hear about like they showed i think vomitoriums total debauchery like yeah horrific behavior um it's almost just like a sadomasochistic like art film almost it's not it almost doesn't even have a plot. well probably <laughs> i'm gonna watch it it probably is no it's, like it's the worth most watching accurate... it's a weird ass movie though yeah yeah I mean, that that was Rome, baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. It's crazy that we, like, the innate need almost or drive or desire of humans to just see gore and have that be a part of society, but it's, like, normalized now in just entertainment, you know? Like, the the culture of just still seeing shit like that, like, people being beaten yeah. to death, the, the kind of soft franchise, kind of intense morbid violence um that just seems to be getting more extreme actually like i i really appreciated movies that just it was more assumed you know you didn't have to like fucking put it in your face and like show people's skin being ripped off and like beaten to bloody pulps or whatever it's just i don't know well i have a i have a very like my opinion on this is very complex because i've as you know i've been like a horror movie aficionado for a very Mm -hmm. long time and like exposed myself to some really gnarly gory movies when i was very young yeah there's definitely like the gratuitous gore that's sort of meant to it's almost like meant to turn your stomach or to shock you i think my favorite version of gore is probably like kind of almost like what the cohen brothers have done on and off throughout their careers where sometimes they'll show it on screen sometimes it'll be off screen but it has this like visceral quality to it where you like feel the death where you're like that fucking that person is like died like there's a so there's something that a lot of that really extreme gore stuff does where it doesn't feel like that where it's almost like so over the top 
where it's just like it's about the spectacle rather than like you're feeling that right that intense feeling of someone dying like no country for old men has both actually in it like the scene at the beginning where he chokes the cop with the handcuffs like that is one of the most brutal murder scenes in any movie like a for me like in any movie of like recent you know last 10 15 years like that kind of stuff to me is like is almost more disturbing than gore because like when you do like that really just in your face trying to jar you shock you gore it's almost feels cheap sometimes i think that's kind of what you're saying yeah i don't know i mean it, hellraiser like, like is kind of too scary for me to watch it today and i'm almost 40 but but the kind of gore that we saw in those kind of movies is totally different than the gratuitous like highly realistic looking shit that is just totally unnecessary and at the same time like you don't it's like you see that in like tv shows like walking dead like i don't mm -hmm, know if you remember mm -hmm. if you got to the season where glenn spoiler alert major character dies in in the show in a very like crazy gory way yeah like, it just I gets like his head like, beaten in fuck? right yeah yeah, yeah. his eyeball yeah. Comes out. it's, it's like, insane dude, it shows the whole thing yeah it was, i mean I, when i saw it i was just like this is like this is taking <laughs> tv show go to a whole new level yeah, i mean yeah, like, yeah. but the, but at the same time you watch stuff on disney plus and you know other streaming networks and you're like this is like really sanitized like they don't or movies like when is the last time you saw a movie in the theater that wasn't rated r where you even saw like blood i mean think about it like I mean, they've been sanitizing know. there's been a weird so there's like juxtaposition of like tv shows and other streaming networks are getting like brutally gory, like the boys shows heads exploding on like every episode. And then on the other hand, movies, you go to the theater and it's like actually hard to find a movie that feels adult in that way. It's sanitized. Every Marvel movie ever made, I can't even think of the amount of times they show blood. You know, even though people are being killed left and right, being punched out constantly, there's like no blood. To me, that kind of violence is actually a more unhealthy for society where people die the body count is high, but the violence is low. The viscerality of it's low. Um, that to me is almost like more unhealthy. Why don't we talk about the feedback that we got from the double episode on COVID that we just put out, Robbie, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mixed reviews. <laughs> we just did basically a five-hour brain dump um, on Media Roots Radio of just all of our thoughts on COVID from the last two years. Uh, it's a very polarizing topic. I think that we tried to give a lot of room and oxygen for the alternative theories that are floating around in alt media spaces. And I thought that we did a good job. I mean, I thought that we did a decent job really feeling all of this out and, you know, not being dismissive or trivializing any of the questions that people have. I felt like it was a really fair conversation that was really honest and frank. And that's really like all I ask for from people is just like understanding where people are coming from and having empathy and space for other people's opinions. And if you may disagree on the facts about COVID, at least respect the fact that, you know, Robbie and I have made very explicitly clear that we don't support mandates. Um, Aside from all of that, Robbie, it did seem like there was a lot of people who were very, very triggered. And I think this goes back to just the dogma that we talked about in the beginning of that series, which was, you know, it's becoming very, very difficult to have discussions about this without feeling like people are ready to pounce and getting super, super reactive and angry. 
and basically accuse you of like shilling for big pharma. So unfortunately, no matter what, you know, even though we did give an incredible amount of space and leeway to an entire paradigm that I don't really subscribe to, um, we just got the same kind of people pouncing on us regardless. And I, I don't think there was anything that we could have said or done differently unless we jumped headfirst into that entire worldview and completely subscribed to it. I'm just going to say, you know, I don't, I don't care. Um, like I'm not hurt or like offended if you as a listener had a really negative reaction to what we talked about. Um, I understand for some people that this feels like the moment, like a global, like there's a global takeover happening for a lot of people. This feels like the moment where we need to all stand up and yell as loudly as possible against all this stuff having to do with every aspect of COVID, you know, from A to Z. Um, I think right off the bat, we're going to not necessarily alienate those people, but it's like, we, we just don't subscribe to that worldview. So I could, I, I almost empathize with people getting like writing us off or feeling as upset at just our overall framing and how, like where we land on this. I can, I can empathize with that. The part that I think I have a little more trouble with is it's like the nuance does escape people. It's like we didn't say anything in either episode of that where we were very critical of Pfizer, Moderna, pharmaceutical companies talking about the biodefense industry, how much, how sleazy they are, how much they control uh, our politicians. But yet there have been people who have inferred from both of our podcasts that somehow because we didn't take a strong enough, we didn't adopt all the talking points of this sort of oppositional COVID narrative that that makes us pro big pharma. Like, and I've seen people saying things like that. I'm just like, this is so weird. Did you even listen to it? Are you just not hearing exactly the talking points you want? So you're sort of overreacting and thinking that somehow you're interpreting what we're saying is pro pharmaceutical, even though it's like overtly anti right i mean in a lot of ways it was very critical so on some level i can understand the touchiness but on another level it's like i thought you know i i guess here's what's weird when people went after you abby for saying just for merely saying you had gotten vaccinated mm -hmm. and said like i can't believe you fell for it like calling rally mm -hmm. you know all these people coming at you it's like wait a fucking second i thought this was about freedom of choice right i thought this whole the whole point Body autonomy, anti-mandate was because you were pro-freedom of choice. But it actually turns out that you are anti-anybody who's gotten the vaccine and you're, you are personally like dehumanizing them or thinking they're stupid or they've fallen for something or they're brainwashed. It's like, wait a second. I thought the whole point was like, we're not thinking that about people. Like we're trying to emphasize people who have chosen not to get vaccinated have every right and, and plenty of reasons not to. Totally their right. We've never, you know, shamed or made anybody try to feel bad who didn't get vaccinated. In fact, we've tried very hard to do the opposite, to give them space, to show compassion. Um, but yet it's like, wait a second. Like, so now you're basically saying you, you're, you're judging my choice and yeah. you're doing exactly what the neoliberals did to you that made you so upset. So it's like, why are you doing it now? Like, I, I, I so I guess that's a little bit confusing to me 
because I guess the whole time I was actually, I actually bought into the idea that this was about freedom of choice, but it turns out it's not. It's just like, if you got vaccinated, you are a dupe. That's how they see it now. And it's like, okay, geez, where do we go from there? I think it's easy for a lot of people who are more civil libertarian minded to get behind the notion that mandates um, are not a good idea at this point in time, right? And that could be for many reasons. Um, as we experience the mutations from variant to variant, what would a mandate really do in terms of transmission, you know, forcing everyone to get a vaccine that I feel like isn't, it's just going to become less and less effective against transmission, even though it might have been effective at the beginning. But that's not where the argument ends, Robbie, because if that's what it was about, then we would all kind of agree and move on, or most of us would, right? It becomes mm -hmm. about an entire alternate reality, that if you don't subscribe to every facet of that alternate reality, then you are still a dupe. So even if you don't agree with mandates, um, if you still believe in the official death toll, right, then, then you're also shilling for big pharma. Um, and then it just becomes strange because, you know, I, I was talking to someone who just kept saying that I was echoing Wall Street talking points and I and I was really trying to reason with him and just be like, how? You know, I'm against mandates. I, I feel like testing is maybe a good alternative. And he's like, well, there you go. You're for mandatory testing, meaning you are for mandates and that's going to make Wall Street a shitload of money. And it's like, well, at that point, I don't really know Wait, how what? we can I don't really know how we can move on from here because now it's just about you feeling like anything is impeding on your just ability to live freely before the pandemic existed. Like, that's what you want to go back to. I don't know how we can actually agree on anything moving I, forward. If it's like, if it's just about anything is just going to be annoying for you. And that is just doing the bidding of Wall Street, basically doing any sort of public health response at all moving forward. I think we also need to just say, and this shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't have any problem saying this because it's true. You, me, and Mike are three different people mm -hmm. with their own fucking opinions about this. And maybe that's hard for people to understand because some of these like alt media outlets act like they're just a cult with a slogan, you know, sloganeering where everybody says the exact same shit. That as human beings, we have we don't share exact opinions on this. Part of what we were trying to like say, the, the, give each other space, trying to attack you and me, which I've seen people do based on like things Mike has said on his own Twitter. It's just like what is happening here? Like, do you not understand that we have different opinions? It, it, I really do think at a certain level, people don't, they, they forget that for a second. Mm -hmm. And I just find that interesting because it's like, well, yeah, we're different people. We have different opinions. We still talk about this. We're still friendly and cordial about it. We don't, you know, we're not like calling each other out over this. So it's like, why don't we try to all do that for each other? Unless at this point, for some people, it's just like, this is the end game. These people are lemmings, they're brainwashed, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to uh, go full steam ahead. If that's where you've already gone mentally, I just, I, I don't even think you're going to listen to anything we're saying. Right. That's the point of no return. Just like people on the liberal side who are just like still basically thinking that people who are unvaxxed are murderers or like, or like evil people. There's no point of return for that either, I don't think. It, I, I just think that's part of what's going on here. It's like, can we at least carve out a space for us to still have these discussions just without just getting so fucking upset? And we did get some, you know, we got some critical comments that weren't writing us off entirely. And I think, you know, when I can really identify that someone really cares 
and they have a problem with something that we said, but they still listen. They still give us a thorough listen. I really appreciate those comments. And I've learned from some of them. And sometimes I'll end up, you know, not really ever agreeing with the person or anything, but, but at the same time, like those are good. And I encourage that. And it's five hours. It's five hours long. People. Yeah, no, it's five a hour long dump. episode. No one, no one in their right mind is going to listen to a five hours. Right. Whoever did that is. <laughs> it's for is real heads. For real out of media their roots. Goddamn heads. That's it. Yeah. I'm glad we did it. I'm glad it's it's behind us. We're going to continue to talk about it because there's so much. I mean, e- since we did the episode, it does seem like a lot of the political climate has drastically shifted. Where now it's like all the state bureau, all the bureaucracies sort of in mass seem to be, you know, kind of winding down things almost like too surprisingly quickly now and pr- putting like mask mandate deadlines in effect, like for the end of the month and seemingly really fast and suddenly, I don't really know why that is. You know, the Ottawa convoy uh, trucker protest thing is happening um, at the same time. A lot of people think that like the establishment is getting afraid of the populace rising up in that regard and stopping it. But I mean, I think we can both agree that that's not really what's happening. I mean, there aren't massive protests happening worldwide against mandates. Um, This protest is rather big and got a lot of national attention, but like this alone causing some kind of ripple effect where they're like, they're getting scared of the us rising up and, and, and pushing back. I mean, there's some other reason why they're doing this. And I would say it's probably largely economic. Yeah, of course. That shutting things down, um, having like, like the way that Omicron, we were winding down already. And then Omicron's like, boom, now we're back. And it seems like all this hysteria is happening again. And then now it's winding down again. That kind of whiplash effect is economically bad for business. That's the part that's just really obvious to me, and I'm just surprised that that's not more talked about with other leftists, like how regardless of how you feel or what your other opinions are about any other aspect of the pandemic, having this, you know, things being lifted, seemingly going against what we were just being told, and it should be obvious that there is a big business interest, there's a capitalist interest in doing this. So like if you're making the argument that there's a capitalist interest in prolonging the pandemic, that feels more like you have to make a more specific argument than that. You have to say the bio, uh, you know, the biotech companies or pharmaceutical companies are profiting by prolonging the pandemic. Um, if, you, if that's your argument or uh, security companies or certain kinds of companies are benefiting from prolonging the pandemic or certain politicians are, but like the idea that capital is being harmed by like the whiplashing effect of this is like undeniable. I mean, like, so like in in a larger sense, like it just, I'm just surprised that that's not more discussed. I don't know what, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I mean, I know that's just an obvious fact, but like, why do you think that that's, well, I think that's just kind of gone by the wayside well, as a talking or like a. That's the most perplexing part to me because it seems so obvious, right? I mean, the entire political establishment yeah. is lined up behind the back to work mantra and very proudly mm-hmm. claiming that they've basically overcome the worst of the pandemic. You know, lockdowns seem like more of a blunt force instrument that was used at the beginning, which I feel like that is how they should be used. Like when all else fails, then lockdowns maybe makes sense, you know, if they're done correctly. But 
at this point, it makes no sense to do that. And I mean, in terms of the masks, the mask mandates and stuff, I mean, it's just crazy that, you know, two to 4,000 people are still dying every day, more than were at the beginning of the pandemic. But it's like, I don't know if it's just the conditioning, the normalization of the reality of this mass death um, event. But yeah, I mean, it, it clearly is in line with Wall Street and capitalism to have the business as usual mentality. And that's what we've seen. So aside from like the school closure debate and like, I don't know if how many cities still have the vaccine passports and stuff like that. I, f- I feel like the, the most shocking thing that I've learned since doing the podcast was that there is kind of a liberal Muslim ban already in effect, which is I had no idea that this country, even though there's no vaccine passports required to travel within the country, that there is a vaccine passport required for everyone traveling to the United States. Like, let's say that you live in Russia. And of course, the vaccine skepticism about the Russian vaccine put out by our government mandates Russian citizens to be vaccinated with one of the three vaccines that are U.S. administered. So J&J, Moderna and Pfizer. And so all of these Russians who just want to travel into the United States have to go to like Bulgaria or something and get and do this like vaccine tourism where they go get a shot, even though they already have the Sputnik shot just to travel. So I'm super upset to learn that. And it really is already happening in terms of this kind of mass banning and and class warfare against like poor people, not necessarily talking about Russia. But what about Africa, where, you know, it's it's below 10 digit percentages of the people who are vaccinated. And I'm sure the people who are vaccinated are vaccinated with the Cuban vaccine or the Chinese vaccine. So what is going on? Probably the Chinese, you know, meanwhile, in the U.S., Everything seems to be changing in the U.S. in terms of restrictions being lifted and mandates being lifted. But at least here in L.A., I don't know when the vaccine passport's going to be over. I haven't heard anyone say that there's a timeline for that. To wrap this up, uh, someone basically said to me that Barry Weiss is blowing me out of the water when it comes to the most important issue of our time, which is COVID and how they can no longer trust my reporting and how, um, you know, all we've done is just play partisan politics and how we're just such a partisan mess. And what's sad about it is I really took pride in the fact that we rejected partisanship. We quite clearly cut through the partisan nature of the divide and we tried to be the opposite of partisan. So I found that fascinating, too, which is like because you just don't wholeheartedly subscribe to whatever the conspiratorial framework is regarding COVID, then you are partisan dem, you know, or if the opposite is true, if you, you know, if you have questions about the vaccine, it's like you're playing to the partisan politics of the right wing. It's just like such a weird rhetorical trap that we've, that a lot of people have fallen into. And I just really hope we can move beyond that and try to see each other as human beings again with complex ideas and thoughts. I just want to go to Canada really quickly. Because like this seems to be a really touchy subject too right now, where there's a lot of people just straight out coming saying that they're all Nazi bulls or all white supremacists. You know, this is a this is a completely right wing astroturf thing that's happening. And part of me thinks there's some truth to the astroturf thing. I guess the way I look at it was something that a, a Canadian follower of mine kind of just summed up perfectly. He says the majority of convoy participation 
is definitely organic, built on real Canadian frustration with two years of incoherent lockdowns and restrictions. But the power brokers, influences, and activists that organized it and funded it are not grassroots. Right. And then he names Tamira Litch, the Bowders, and Pat King. Now, Tamira Litch is the leader of like a fringe Canadian separatist party that believed in like a secessionist style movement. And apparently her organization was the one who put that GoFundMe page together. One other strange thing about this organization, the same separatist Canadian party that ran the GoFundMe page for this, and I just should say for the record, I think it's really fucked up actually that GoFundMe can just be like, oh, we're going to take all this money and donate it to whoever we want because it like violates our policies. They legally should have to refund people. I mean, like at the very least, if they want to have editorial control and like ban certain funding things, whatever, but to like not refund people's money seems like they should not be able to do that. But anyways, the separatist party is the one who hosted this GoFundMe page that racked up something like $7 million in like under a week. And the previous trucker convoy uh, that she helped organize, Abby, because this is something that she has done before, was called United We Roll. And what was United We Roll actually for? It was a trucker convoy protest for an oil pipeline and fossil fuel companies. It was in protesting like the government, some government policy where they weren't going to allow some pipeline to be built somewhere. That's insane. And it was sort of like an AstroTurf thing where it made it seem as if this was like a working class uprising because they wanted these jobs so badly. So I, I guess the point I'm making is that there obviously are elements of this convoy protest that are like AstroTurf. I would guess some of these people who are in this convoy and don't even know who Tamara Litch is and might not even be happy if they found out exactly who was behind that funding thing. But I, I don't really know. I mean, it's also like what we were saying about all the videos that are used in a kind of agitprop sense from all over the world about COVID protests. It's like, I don't know what is even going on in Ottawa. I know that people have been there on the ground interviewing people and there's been a diversity of opinions about what they're upset about. I feel like it's irresponsible to weigh in unless I know what the fuck is even going on. And it's like, sort of make just definitive statements either way, I feel like just doesn't make sense about any of this shit. It's like, I live here. It's just like the same people who are like, you know, you need to condemn Assad. <laughs> it's like, look, I live in America. I, I'm upset that there's a huge, massive death count here. And I feel like the only thing I could do is like lobby my own government to try to do something better for us um, and stop fucking up the rest of the planet. But it is crazy that they that they have to mandate truckers just driving through the U.S. to be vaccinated. It also seems way weirder than actually requiring people to fly in with a U.S. vaccine because it's like truckers are usually like solitary, right? Like they just come in. With their giant load, yeah. Wait, on a I didn't truck. even know that. Wait, this. Yeah, I think so. That those th mandates for being a trucker, dude. In yeah, the US I, right now? I literally think that that's what is like the crux of the protest is that they were requiring vaccinations to go from Ottawa into. Oh, oh, to cross the border. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, I thought you meant within. No, no, no. Truckers who do routes within inside no. the United States. No. Yeah, because that's another thing that Fox news and other right-wing groups are also hyping up. They're like, I'm hearing talk. This is going to happen in the U.S. really soon. 
I'm hearing rumors from truckers. I saw a libertarian guy that's friends with someone that I'm pretty close to get invited on Fox News because he's a trucker. And they were sort of almost using his appearance to to like speak for truckers and act almost sort of like a rumor mill for this humming trucker protest. So I actually reached out to him directly and I was like, hey, forgive me for not like taking your word for it, but like, what is like, show me something where there's an actual movements with American truckers doing, you know, planning a convoy thing like this. And did, nobody was able to show me anything. And I'm just thinking they're the right and, and mass right now seems to be almost playing into this sort of hype thing. Like, it just seems like it's kind of just all hype. Right. But you, I think you hit on a really, really important point, Abby, that I just wanted to uh, go back to, which is it does feel like there is a resemblance to, you know, when people from the United States here who act like leftists and then they get on a high horse and talk down to you saying, why aren't you condemning Canadian authoritarianism? It does seem awfully similar to why aren't you condemning Assad? Why aren't you condemning Putin? Why aren't you condemning Z? Why aren't you condemning the treatment of the U- the Uyghurs in China? Why aren't you condemning Gaddafi hurting his own people? Why aren't you condemning the clerics in Iran? I mean, come on here. It does. It is a little bit. I mean, it's kind of more than a slippery slope. And I would even argue it does seem kind of like a setup to me for neoliberal style regime change rhetoric to spread to a certain sector of politics in regards to this as a ramp for the author- the global authoritarianism that we as Americans need to stop. And it's like, wait a second, seems very similar to the way neoliberals talk about regime change. And I'm a little concerned of where this rhetoric is going. So I'll just say that. The absolutism and the dogma is getting so rabid and unnecessary. Like it really is unnecessary. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree with you. It is very unsettling to see this kind of mental traps being used to basically force you to, like, either condemn or endorse something that you might not know enough about. That's, to me, when things seem like it should be obvious that that's a to- very toxic trend because it literally shuts out discussion about being like, look, I'm not condemning this protest. I don't think these people are bourgeois, Z, whatever, like... But I also think like we got to be able to talk about the weird shadow right wing funding to this and how obviously there are elites who are somehow playing into this. Fox News isn't like leaning into this every day because they're renegades. There's obviously some kind of elite uh, establishment benefit to to boosting this. And that's I, I think we should be questioning. I mean, so like both things can be true at the same time. A lot of it could be organic and it's also being co-opted. Why can't we be adults and have a conversation about that? Right. Instead, it's like you either are for it or against it. Dude, you're not fucking George W. Bush, and this isn't the fucking war on terror, dude. <laughs> Fuck off. This is like we're, we're people who want to talk. So we just wanted to add something to the recording since there's been a lot of uproar and commentary and takes um, about the Canadian convoy protest. The day we recorded, actually, originally... We were recording before the news came in that Justin Trudeau announced uh, that he was putting in emergency powers uh, to deal with some emergency powers act that I guess was on the books that he had activated to deal with the Canadian convoy protesters. Uh, It seems like a lot of them were basically 
like taken out of this like protest. I mean, a lot of like cops already came in and it seems like they took most of them away. But sort of before all that happened, there was these threats where Justin Trudeau was, I guess there was not just him, but other like people in the Canadian government overtly saying they were going to freeze the bank accounts of people who were involved in the convoy protest. And so that obviously created a lot of outrage. And that was sort of, I guess a lot of people thought that they were just going to freeze everybody's bank accounts, but it doesn't seem like that's happening. So there are a handful of people's bank accounts actually being frozen so far, but it's not happening to the degree which uh, people thought it was maybe going to be happening. I mean, obviously I completely condemn any attempt from the state to seize bank accounts of any political stripe. Even if these people were neo-Nazis, that is a really horrible precedent to set. And I obviously these people are not. So it's just crazy. It shouldn't matter what the political character is of any movement to set a precedent where the state can seize assets because you're just a participant in something like this is really troubling. It goes back to Black Lives Matter for me because a lot of people are just really revealing their hypocrisy who live in America, who just like ignored the fact that there was like a full-blown police state, mm -hmm. like literally crushing people. Laughing and joking about running people over with cars. A cop caught on a body camera in Boston making jokes about wanting to run over protesters. Yeah. And, I mean, and right-wingers laughed about that kind of stuff. That Biggs guy who was like an Infowars guy. I mean, they were, they just had t-shirts and memes that they were passing around like with the helicopter you know throwing communists out of helicopters the black lives splatter shit it's really dark it's really dark and the fact that multiple states actually passed laws that immunized drivers from actually barreling through crowds of people oh god that was the response it was like all these people who are like oh my god like the squad has really derailed anything from getting done because all the left politic influence in biden's administration really backfired and like this shows that we shouldn't go too far left it's like what the fuck are you talking about like i swear to god they think that like the police have been defunded or something it's mm -hmm. the most backwards ass stuff when you look at what actually happened after black lives matter the police got more money more funding because it was just used as, as an excuse to like crack down on like rioting and shit. And really what happened was all of these different states working to protect themselves and motorists from ramming through crowds. I mean, what does that do? Just like the Kyle Rittenhouse shit that actually encourages people to do these things. So I think part of what you're commenting on, you didn't say at the very beginning, but I think you're referring to the fact that a lot of right wingers are acting outrage at police brutality in Canada right now. There's specifically one very viral photograph and partly a video. The video is harder to tell what's going on, but the photograph is very, you know, it's 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 photographically very provocative. It shows an old woman basically like lying on the ground with like horses, like mounted Canadian horses walking over her. And this was sort of an image that the right wing was passing around looking like, oh my God, look how tyrannical the Canadian police are for trampling this old woman and I literally saw people, like big accounts on the right wing, blue checkmark accounts saying like, American police would never do something like this brutal. And they started to actually say things like, now they've crossed the line. Like, we've never seen anything like this from our police. As an experiment, I actually was commenting and replying to some of the people being like, well, what about this video? What about that? 
like some of the people were actually like, oh my God, like I didn't even know that our, like you're right. Like they were genuinely surprised that American police had done that or worse before, trampled people with horses, which is something that happens at a lot of protests. I mean, it happened at the 2004 RNC. They use a lot of mounted horse police to just like trample crowds and push around protesters. And a lot of people got crushed. I was even going back to the original Iraq war protests in the Bay Area. They used wooden dowel projectiles um, at an Oakland port protest and someone's like face got halfway torn off and like, th- and this stuff like barely got reported even at the time. It just was like, there's been so many incidents, you know, of riot police doing these kind of things to protesters. And, but at a certain point, it's just like, well, the BLM protesters, they're rioting, they're arsonists, you know, that's become the right wing narrative. So at that point, anything used against them is almost like they could just write all that off. But then I noticed another really interesting rhetorical slippery slope. We were already in our original recording, we were talking about how a lot of this energy is being like, Trudeau is a tyrant, you know, we need to like take him out, you know, like we need to change, (laughs) we need to take him down as the leader and all this stuff coming from like a lot of American right wingers. So that was interesting enough because it's like sort of creates a pivot point where you could almost... It's like not that that would, you know, is directly some form of neoliberal regime change, but you could see that being like, why aren't you condemning Trudeau? Why aren't you condemning Putin, et cetera? It sort of takes on that similar framework. But then it got even weirder since we recorded, Abby, where this is now the rhetoric, which is wild to me. Because like it is almost like we sort of predicted that it would be a pathway for that, but I didn't predict it like that it would get like this because this is almost like a hyperbolic version of what I was suggesting Scott Adams tweeted, if Putin invades Ukraine and Z moves on Taiwan, that could be the opening for Biden to invade Canada and free their citizens. Now, that sounds like he's maybe being partly sarcastic. But then this Candace Owens tweet actually sounds like she's not at all saying this in jest, and it's insane. Stop talking about Russia, she says. Send American troops to Canada to deal with the tyrannical regime of Justin Trudeau Castro. He has fundamentally declared himself dictator and is waging war on on innocent Canadian protesters and those who have supported them financially. So I, I just find that interesting that that's there's actual right like big popular right wing accounts saying stuff like that. So I just that's odd because not that we shouldn't be condemning like police brutality in Canada, but it is interesting when this much energy and focus is directed at something happening in another country which is really not a whole, that brutal in comparison to things we've seen here. I feel this pressure to like, you know, we all have to rally behind and condemn this and talk about Canadian police now. It's like, I, I just find that, frankly, like it does, it does some kind of seem like an op to me, even though I do have solidarity with the working class. Like it's become this thing where if you don't wholeheartedly support the entire enchilada of all the talking points beyond the Canadian protest, you're against the working class. Like, which is hilarious, but that's what it's turned into. Yeah, if you don't support this slice of workers or truckers or whatever, Teamsters Union released a statement against the convoy. It's like there's a lot of nuances there. And so it, it is a very cartoonish binary that we're supposed to fall into. And I just don't I don't subscribe to the pressure campaign. I refuse to subscribe to that. I think that it's just going to continue like this, Robbie. Sadly, what we were talking about with the COVID narrative, I think this is how we're going to see things unfold now. The pressure to just latch on to one thing wholeheartedly without any nuance. And 
we're, we've absolutely seen that play out with the with the trucker stuff. It's unfortunate. Yeah, and there's still not any attempt even by some of the lefties who are you know being really dogmatic about supporting this and and putting all your effort and energy behind it there doesn't seem to be they're not really allowing any space to be like well wait a second let's at least talk about the right-wing co-optation of this if you supporting the cause that's different from supporting like the whole enchilada like that's like it's like so when you see some of these people supporting and pushing and trying to shove down your throat that whole enchilada, you kind of have to wonder, well, why aren't they allowing like a more left version or left prism variation of this cause like and, and discussion to come through? It's At that point, it almost seems like, well, it just kind of seems like you guys are getting more and more right wing by the day, like literally. I mean, so it just, I, I, I don't really know what to think. And I'm not even saying that the, all the convoy protests are right wing. I'm not saying that at all. There's probably plenty of, you know, left leaning or, you know, rant, like not even like apolitical Canadian citizens who are protesting the mandates there. Well, it's funny. Yeah, I've had several people tell me, you know, you're wrong on COVID. Like the right wing narrative is actually true this time. And you should you're so partisan that you can't see that the truth is being heralded by the right wing. And it's like it's never that simple, man. If the entire right wing media machine is like parroting something like that's not a good thing to latch onto and uncritically repeat. There's always a hidden agenda that you need to parse through and critically analyze. And even if you agree with the underlying cause of what these truckers are doing, like there is a problem with uncritically regurgitating what Fox News, what OANN is saying. And it kind of reminds me of the fact that the COVID whole enchilada narrative doesn't give any oxygen to the left demands that should have been front and center from the populist left or whatever, free healthcare primarily. Like this is what should be the driving energy that is unifying us through this pandemic. And instead it's all been capitalized by the bodily autonomy thing and vaccines. And it's so strange that that's happened. Well, I mean, it's strange, but on, and on one hand, it's also seems like this co-optation really does seem to have a clear agenda. It is to shift this outrage and resentment against government towards a very specific political prism that is right wing in nature. I mean, that is clearly what's behind it. We would have seen at least one doctor at that rally in D.C., you know, at least entertaining the idea of free health care. But why is it time and time again, all these doctors, these guru like doctors just seem to never espouse those kinds of beliefs. Isn't that a coincidence to you? If this really was an organic, not co-opted resistance movement, do you really think it would make it on primetime Fox News every night? There's something about this narrative that is obviously being co-opted. And you even saw Majid Nawaz, who basically was an anti-terror neocon for the UK government, going on Joe Rogan and saying that the World Economic Forum... And all this sort of global lockdown stuff is all being dictated by China's intelligence services who are puppeting all of the other Western intelligence services like the MI5, CIA. So this is... Can you imagine believing that? No, I can't. And so we're in a really topsy-turvy, strange world. Some of the same like alt-media left heroes that even some of our same listeners love are platforming the same guests that the Frank Gaffney show is platforming now. We're in a very strange world. Yes, I'm talking about Darren J. Beatty's as, as the guest. It's like a house of mirrors sometimes, so. It's a trap. 
<laughs> it's all a trap and it's all an op. I mean, I'm really feeling like that more and more. I'm like all the shit that you called controlled opposition and like, I don't know. I mean, it really, I'm becoming more conspiratorial by the day in terms of like how all of this is being stage managed and by who and for what end. So Robbie, moving on to China, have you caught any of the Olympics or might I say the hysterical war drive that has dominated Olympics coverage in the mainstream media? But seven years later, these games arrive with China more advanced and more powerful, with its place in the world growing ever more contentious. A primary issue, the U.S. government and human rights organizations have declared China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghur population in the northwest region of Xinjiang as genocide. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's funny because I haven't even watched a single clip of the Olympics from television or anything. And all I've seen of the Olympics is like the anti-China social media or journalism journalist reactions, TV or otherwise, uh, all coming through Twitter um, from like Western journalists, some of them having just real-time reactions where they're acting all upset at how, you know, quote unquote, totalitarian they think China is or how dystopian it is when a guy wearing PPE is, uh, is making cocktails at one of the bars, like for Olympians or whatever. Like somebody on social media is like, this is so fucking dystopian. Look at this shit. <laughs> but they were saying it like specifically like this is like you know china is really dystopian uh and then there's also the other flavor of um anti-china stuff that feels more constructed that feels more like it's being seeded in like think tanks and little uh, maybe even by intel agencies who are putting this stuff out there like the whole pressure campaign against eileen Gu. i, I think i'm pronouncing i hope i'm pronouncing her name correctly she was an american athlete uh who was getting all this notoriety really young up-and-coming skier so she was considered an american athlete right like so when she decided to compete on china's olympic team this year in the olympics when that happened it was like it seemed like one of the most outrageous things to people that like this would have been something that w the U.S. would have acted like they were a, on a high horse about during like the '80s Olympics against like Russia, to like work internationally, international solidarity. Let's all be friends. Let's you know make friends or whatever. But now it's like if a American citizen decides to go to China and then compete on their team, and seems completely in love with her experience doing it. It doesn't matter. It's like the more she doubles down and defends herself when people come at her for being like a traitor, basically, the more intense she's been really defensive, but like, and kind of trying to stay really positive, like reporters will ask her, what do you have to say about all, you know, th this criticism you're getting? And, and she's just like straight up, like, I think those people have like weak hearts <laughs> or like people who like are just looking to like jump on someone who just like really enjoys life. <laughs> It was just really funny the way she put it, but it, it's just like enraging these people even more where it's just like, why isn't she criticizing China? How could she be so flippant posting on Instagram from China when, you know, the state doesn't allow people there to use Instagram and all this stuff. And it just goes on and on and on and on. And it's like, I do not remember a single instance 
where any American athlete ever had to like apologize for the Iraq war or anything like that. Like, why are they fucking, do, why, why is this okay to do to uh, an athlete simply because they decide to start competing on a foreign country's team? Why is that okay to do to her? It's just rather insulting and xenophobic. And I like that she's not caving to it in any way. I, I really like that she's not. And I, you know, and the way the American media would paint that, of course, is being like, well, she can't criticize China because if she did, she'd be kicked off and they would arrest her. So that's why she's being so hyper positive about China and stuff. It's like, but I, I mean, I get the genuine gut feeling that she's just like, she finds it like as egregious and insulting that the media would even make a story about any of this shit. Like, and can't just like let it go. It's like, yeah, someone here wanted to compete on China's team. Leave it the fuck alone. Yeah, dude. It's Instead, it's become like this, she's become like a political football for these like anti-China hawk regime change people. Can you imagine any other country demanding U.S. athletes to like denounce like Guantanamo Bay or Obama's drone fuck wars? No, it's just like, fuck what no. the Never. hell is going on? They wouldn't on? even dare. This is a Chinese American who decided to play for China's team. Good on her. You know, I wanted to talk about two clips that I saw. Um, one of them, I forget if it was CNN or MSNBC, but really, does it even matter? Um, it was during the beautiful opening ceremony. You know, it's a moment where the world can come together, put aside their differences and actually revel in like athleticism, you know, and it's like this 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 thing that should be completely apolitical. But as we know, it's it's always been used as a political tool. And we can get into what happened during Sochi, which was a disgrace. But, you know, as you see this opening ceremony, like literally minutes into it, um, all of a sudden an anchor just started talking about, look, oh, my God, who is sitting next to Xi Jinping? Oh, it's Putin. Two strongman authoritarians, the world's most dangerous men sitting up there having cocktails. Hmm, what do you think they're talking about? Could they be plotting to invade Ukraine? <laughs> like that is amazing. It's just dude. like, yeah, dude, that's what's happening right now. Watch out for the two most powerful authoritarians in the world in the VIP box sitting side by side. Chinese President Xi Jinping, Russian President Vladimir Putin. They have a close relationship. They formed an axis of power to challenge the United States. One of the big questions hanging over these Olympics is whether Putin will send his armies and his tanks into Ukraine while the competition is going on. And if he does that, will Xi Jinping support him? If that happens, we could be living in a very different world at the end of these Olympics. Dude, that's so funny because I was just get, I'm getting flashbacks of um, you know, the Olympics in Sochi. Yeah. Was it the Winter yeah, yeah, Olympics yeah. that was happening right before or yeah. almost like during simultaneously with Euro Maidan, um, which kind of to me seemed like it was done intentionally. Whoever exacerbated that wanted it to go off during like a Putin's you know proudest moment or whatever, and it did. And I honestly believe that that was partly intentional, it could just to make the whole situation more volatile and more overwhelming and, and whatever but it's so funny going back to the opening ceremonies of those olympics and like my brain is polluted yeah with the u.s propaganda that all how expensive those opening ceremonies were was all due to like the russian mafia like corrupt <laughs> oligarchs and like the corrupt 
amount of like money that was like stolen by Putin to put into the Olympics. And it's like, I can't, it's just so fucked up. It's like, dude, what if we, can you imagine any other Olympic coverage being like that or about like the, the US? Or like, what about the Qatar Olympics that they're probably going to host the Olympics yeah, soon? Dude. It's going to be like, how many slaves any- are buried in the ruins of the, yes. <laughs> built these stadiums on? Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so funny how one-sided it is and how natural it is for these and a lot of these anchors who are saying this type of shit are like several like they're not like getting marching orders they're not like actual cia assets they're like brainwashed into thinking that they're fucking like heroes and it's their duty to like call this shit out and you know wait like fight this good fight for like what we stand for as like america yeah no they they believe this shit and and that's the thing is they they know that they have to litter that shit in there they know that when they're covering the Olympics, they are expected to trash China, you know, to talk about the Uyghurs. And that's why you see these packages inserted so seamlessly about Chinese genocide. Robbie, just throwing around the word genocide about the Uyghurs. We all agree that China and the U.S. are in a competition of systems. And as I bring myself into this conversation, some have said that uh, there's a cloud over these Olympics, that China has come under fire globally because of policies and practices. In fact, the U.S. has issued a diplomatic boycott of these games, sending no officials here because of human rights. In particular, China's treatment of the minority Uyghur population in the Xinjiang region. Andy, the U.S. has come right out and called it genocide. Savannah, this is obviously the most sensitive issue at the Olympics. Western governments, the White House, human rights groups allege that the Chinese government is engaged in a systematic repression of Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They allege that this is a massive program of social engineering aimed at suppressing Muslim Uyghur culture, language, tradition, identity. They allege a host of human rights abuses. Yeah, I mean, the PPE stuff has been really disturbing, too, how people are just like, China's a dystopian hellhole. It's like, yeah, it's a different country. It's a communist country. They have dealt with the pandemic extremely differently than us. Um, And it's just casting judgment on an entire country while knowing nothing about its political system, uh, the way it functions. You know, it's it's just a lot of arrogant empire baby type people that are just putting their shit out there um and i have watched a couple olympic sports and they seem pretty cool um beijing seemed like they did a really cool job making making all this shit real sweet (laughs) i don't know what to say (laughs) i mean that's basically like it like i don't even i haven't even like watched anything else i just saw those two clips and i was like shocked at how disgusting it was but i'm assuming i'm assuming the rest of the coverage has been filtered through the same lens yeah and that's everything everything that we're seeing that's that's good or that seems positive coming out of there it's like always there's always this other layer of it where it's like actually here's what's really happening you know uh peng shui the you know the tennis player who came out in an interview uh who said that you know like seemed really exuberant and fine actually in reality she's being held hostage and being stage managed by the CCP. And, and she was act that interview was actually conducted under duress. She didn't write that text interview that came out months earlier, you know, because like we were trying to make it seem like she was still kidnapped and that wasn't really her. But now that she's on camera, we have to say that she's now like under duress. She's being like forced to say these things. It's just the, the whole thing is just ridiculous. 
I mean, I remember right wingers right after the pandemic started going back to those committee on the present danger, two part media roots episodes about that neocon think tank that had reformed right after the pandemic. There were a ton of right wingers in that sphere and all their followers believing that CNN was basically a Chinese mouthpiece, Chinese government mouthpiece. I remember people calling it CCPNN and stuff like that. And it's like, and, and then if you notice now during all this new Olympic coverage, there isn't really much right-wing narrative coming out saying, oh, here's proof that CNN is covering for China because they're running this like whitewashing thing about Z or whatever. Like, You don't see that anymore. And I think that that's a sign also that more like of those mainstream networks are more leaning into the anti-China direction now to an extent where it's like now that they have now that their orientation is more generally anti-China, the right wing doesn't like make as much noise about that because it's like they've gotten almost like what they wanted. Whatever that energy was trying to generate, like pressure campaign, it like got its way. It, it inched in enough where it's like the mainstream media now is complains about China enough where they don't have to like make the noise to get the main to call the mainstream media out on that specifically. I don't well, know you've always been you've sense. always been pretty ahead of the curve because you put those episodes out, God, two years ago now. Um, they were great. It couldn't be more obvious now with the narrative that's been cultivated by the corporate media, especially in light of the Olympic Games. Um, and now, you know, I just Googled simply China Olympics, literally just straight up Googled that and looked at the news results and every single result is um, a shit take about China, like framing the entire article about how controversial it is that China is hosting the Olympics, how it was a horrible idea, how, oh, for China, this is the New York Times, for China hosting the Olympics is worth every billion, baby. All the stolen money, all the stolen money from these Chinese oligarchs uh, worth every billion, Robbie, because it's all about shaping world opinion Currying favor, just like the handing out the vaccinations and PPE around the world. That's all China currying favor. Um, and then you have, you know, PBS, China hosts Olympics amid controversy. What controversy? What controversy? The Uyghur stuff? Like, what about the fucking U.S., dude? Funnily enough, um, China did host the Olympics before in 2008. And if you look at the coverage back then versus today, it's just it couldn't be more stark. You know, well, why I, is that? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting because I remember even we, and I regret this actually, because now that I've seen how like people like Tucker and Josh Hawley and he's like, why are we like going after Russia? We need to go after China. Yeah, I remember right. back then when the Sochi Olympics happened, we were like, how come we don't remember any of this shit happening with like the ba last Beijing Olympics? Mm -hmm. Like it seemed pretty favorable, even though like we, we know, I remember we even talked about how somebody died a couple of people like died making one of the stadiums in an accident or something. And, you know, if that had happened during the Sochi Olympics, that during that time period, it would have been like huge news. It would have been all they would have been talking about. But it's like it goes in these weird cycles where back then China wasn't a target of like this U.S. propaganda matrix. And now it is. And back then Russia was a target of it. So it's it's strange. I mean, and now Russia is also a target. So it's like now we're actually in a very dangerous spot where Russia and China simultaneously all the news networks including the right-wing media the like neoliberal media sphere mainstream media corporate media they've all sort of oriented both together against china and russia and it's like it's inching up even you know by the day it's getting worse and worse 
And I think Absolutely. that's really concerning that that's happening. Absolutely. And some of these articles are just hilarious. And the package that I mentioned was hilarious too, because it was basically throwing everything at China other than like Tibet. It was like, boom, like Uyghur Muslims, boom, Hong Kong protester repression, like boom, social credit score. It was just like, boom, like damn, like every, every criticism of China <laughs> that you probably don't even know the reality behind. You're just like, 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 let's fucking put that one in there too, dude. We got to like go at them hella hard with every single thing we've ever heard about China. And like, I'm reading this article from York Dispatch. I don't know. It's just another corporate news article, but it's basically like with each passing day, it's becoming more obvious that China should not have been selected. And it talks about how the hotel conditions are deplorable inside the quarantine for athletes. There's this notion that like Chinese authorities are hovering over all the reporters and making sure that they only speak favorably to China. It's like, if that's the case, why have I only heard negative <laughs> China bashing content from all the people who are there? It's just like a cartoonish depiction of really any country that is mysterious and deemed an enemy country from the U.S. I mean, it was the same thing when I was in Cuba. People were like, oh shit, like you're not, you're not, or Venezuela. Like the government has, has handlers everywhere. Like they're going to make sure that only pre-approved people can talk to you. It's like, dude, what are you talking about? Like, literally just go and talk to anyone on the street. Like, I don't know what reality you're living in, but like that shit's been spoon-fed to you, son. That is not the way that the shit works. So it's been kind of disgusting to see. Um, unsurprising, though, you know, as the war fervor continues to build against China, as the Asia pivot continues to be front and center with American policy. Um, and this leads into the next topic of discussion, which is the completely manufactured, cultivated narrative about Russia being on the doorstep of invading Ukraine. To start off this part of the discussion, I think it's really important to frame it with the U.S. national defense strategy itself, right? For people who think this is hyperbolic, that, oh, the, yeah, the U.S. wants war with China and Russia. Why would they want that, you know? This whole notion of uni unipolarity, like, is it really that crazy? Is it really all about U.S. hegemony? Well, in fact, yes, it is. And it's not hidden. This isn't some grand conspiracy that I'm just making up out of thin air. This is literally laid out in the U.S. National Defense Strategy document, which states that, quote, their principal priority is to counter Russia and China as competitors. And the way to do that is sustained investment in lethal force, end quote. So this is basically putting into a doctrine that the U.S., after the fall of the Soviet Union, that it never would allow another competitor of that scale, as was the Soviet Union. The Cold War was um, a huge impediment for U.S. hegemony, of course, and so that's why you had people like Francis Fukuyama declaring it was the end of history, when the Soviet Union fell, right? Um, the only way forward was liberal democracies, a aka free markets, and communism was declared dead, fascism was declared dead because it was defeated in World War II, and you had this kind of new world order that was instituted and overseen by the U.S. and its junior partners, and that's why we saw the NATO alliance come into effect, the UN, all of these global bodies that were basically all acting accordingly with this kind of new plan of domination, IMF, World Bank, you know, all of the countries needed to fold under and be subservient to this new economic order. 
And so this is really at the crux of the policy. It's pretty disturbing that it really comes down to this. But I mean, you really have to be naive at this point to actually think that it has anything to do with human rights, right? But I think it's confusing for some people because they're like, well, why? Why do we care so much about Russia if it isn't ideological as much? You know, they're not communists. They're, they're capitalists. What is this about? It's about competition. It's about the fact that the U.S. can't completely decimate countries like Syria as long as they have Russia in their corner. They can't completely strangle Africa as long as they have China in their corner. And that's really what it comes down to. You know, it's a very cynical reality, but that's unfortunately where we're at. One of the things I realized after doing a very heavy agenda and just following the how this blew up so early on was that it did seem like there always has been a faction of D.C. or foreign policy thinkers or a faction of the military industrial complex that seems to believe that like NATO, like supremacy as like a, a, a means for like American hegemony is like a like a smart strategy or that it's like a strategy that we need to really commit to, you know, and, and also I think it symbolizes the idea that America and NATO sort of like have this responsibility to the globe, you know, this quote unquote responsibility. So that's part of why I think Ukraine flared up the way it did. I don't know as much about the economics or, you know, Russia being a competitor, but I definitely have a pretty good handle on like the, what that symbolized in terms of just like a greater geo strategic posturing on all the United States uh, neocons and stuff act like there's all this symbolism and what Putin did by eventually being able to get Crimea. But I mean, I think that I, I tend to look at all the symbolism of what it means in terms of what we did, why we took that stand, why we meddled in Ukraine to, you know, even try to, you know, agitate Euromaidan and, and co-op those protests. Why do we do all that stuff? I think that it's it it plays into a lot of that same symbolism. It's America basically putting its foot down and being like, you cannot fucking, like, you're not fucking allowed to do anything like this. We will stop you. And I think that that's kind of what it came down to at a certain point. I'm happy that you weighed in because I I wanted your expert opinion on giving context to the situation happening now. Because, of course, a very heavy agenda was made during this Euromaidan uh, protests, the coup, the successful coup in Ukraine, Victoria Nuland announcing that they were going to just put their people in the government. Um, very disturbing stuff. At the same time, I was at RT. The, the Crimea incursion happened. I read the statement. I became this anti-Russia hero hoisted up in the corporate media. And then I was used and weaponized. And then that didn't work out. And then I became smeared. And there was a lot going on that made sense, right? Because Russia was acting in their interest, in their sphere of influence. And the U.S. basically was like, you cannot fucking do anything. At the same time, the U.S. was backing this coup in Ukraine, which was also just trying to cause a reaction from Russia, right? There were several red lines that have been crossed. And basically, the U.S. has been trying to poke the bear for a long fucking time. So I guess the audacity today to actually declare that Russia is doing something that the U.S. needs to respond to um, is just totally wrong and false. And anyone who understands the history um, and understands what the diplomatic tensions and strategy has been for the last, I mean, you couldn't even call it diplomatic. I guess the military strategy and tensions have been over the, since the Cold War 
then you kind of get to understand what is happening and how dangerous it really is. But Robbie, I mean, do you want to talk about like that? I mean, how we got here from what happened in 2013, 2014? Well, I mean, I think I'd just maybe go back yeah. a little further really quickly, just back to the 90s and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Now, there was all this talk that we were offering Russia membership to NATO. We pulled back the invitation. That's been said before. I think Lawrence Wilkerson is one of the people who's sort of said that that happened. He was there during that, you know, during that process or whatever. You know, ever since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the U.S. has had this strange, hard to understand relationship with Russia, post-Soviet Union Russia, where it's like we propped up the original Yeltsin government in Russia, and we seemingly gave him all this leeway to do things, but at the same time, like, you know, had a lot of intelligence operations going on there, making sure that a lot of the old uh, Soviet Union actors didn't take power again. There's a lot of shenanigans we were doing there, but the whole time it just sort of, we had this like policy or less like, you know, from the outside, it looked like we had this policy that it was sort of like, we're letting this new government flourish. We're not doing anything to meddle there, even though we were. And then that, that's just how sort of things sort of evolved until Putin eventually became prime minister or whatever his title is in Russia. And in a weird way, we also sort of helped get him there like indirectly. So it the whole evolution, when you go back to the very beginning of this, is really strange. It's almost like, you know, okay, let's let Russia be this democracy, you know, supposed democracy after the fall of the Soviet Union, but let's not really fully let them off the leash. Let's like keep them on a leash, make it seem like it's a really long leash, but like in reality, be a really tight leash. And then I don't know at what point that changed or if it did change. It did seem like Putin getting in power there did like change the way that the U.S. approached Russia. And at that point, it just seemed like all bets were off. The Poland missile defense shield thing that we, that the Bush administration acted like was to protect us against a nuclear attack from Iran. I mean, that was a very strange thing that we did. And I mean, I think that that set a lot of this in motion, to be honest, like in the first place, because that's right after that happened, is when you got the Magnitsky Act, uh, which was a very strange sort of forced in. We know it like as based on a lot of lies, what actually happened in Magnitsky. There's a lot of myth-making. We don't really know the full story about him, but it turned into this like human rights abuses in Russia, basically international campaign where it got like a version of the Magnitsky Act got like passed in several different countries that simultaneously, like from several different countries, sanctioned various members of Russia and the Russian government. I, you know, that's the sort of the background for all this stuff happening. In the late 90s, there was all this talk about one of the biggest, most dangerous diseases that people were worried about, including the World Health Organization, uh, was smallpox. It was known for a really long time. This, was, this is what was told for years and years, and it's still framed like this, is that Russia and the United States were the only two countries that were authorized by agreements made at the WHO to keep live smallpox virus samples in labs for the ability to do research on it. So, you know, with, within the framework of we're doing, we're keeping these virus samples so that we can develop like better and stronger vaccines in case this disease ever comes back. But there was also this argument going at the same time saying that, 
well, the only way an outbreak can probably happen now is if one of either one of these samples <laughs> escapes from the lab. A lot of people were coming at it from being like, well, why are we even keeping these around anymore? Like, we've already eradicated smallpox. These are literally the only two known samples. Why don't we just destroy them and be like, okay, now we're now smallpox is truly eradicated? Because otherwise, there's always going to be a fear that somehow these could escape from a lab. It's like one of the world's most dangerous diseases. So that was an argument going for a long time. But it was w- the weird part, Abby, is that there was a rumor also being floated around the same time the Iraq war was being like, like they were propagandizing us and priming the pump for the Iraq war build up here, saying that Russia had a bioweapons program in the, in the 90s, all the way until 1992, when Yeltsin was in power, that was creating hundreds of tons of smallpox virus in like a dried powder form per year and just storing it in containers. Think about this. This is the weird thing. This is after the Soviet Union collapsed when, you know, the U.S. has intel agents crawling all over that country at this point. We allowed this bioweapons program apparently to continue until 1992 under Yeltsin. And then the craziest part is all the narratives and even all these like CIA leaks said that then it just disappears at that point. We don't know what Yeltsin did or if he just turned the other cheek and just allowed disgruntled scientists to just sell all the smallpox off or smuggle it to terrorist oil. It just vanishes. And that's that's literally like the that's the last we've heard of it. So it's just really interesting to me that we try to use Russia as almost like a gateway for essentially saying that Iraq may have the smallpox virus, that they may possess it because all this r- smallpox that Russia was making in their bioweapons program uh, is gone now. And we don't know what ha- happened to it. And I just, the whole thing is just so weird when you get into that, that, all the way back to that very beginning of the timeline. Like, how did we, did we ever really let Russia off of the leash? I mean, like we act like we did, but it's like, that just, just that alone makes no sense. Like, how could we have possibly not known where this bioweapons material went? I mean, it makes me think it never even really existed, that it's just like a, a, a myth, that because it just does not make sense when you pull the pieces together. So anyways. It's very interesting. There's, you know, we've always been breathing down Russia's neck since then, in a way. It's like we've never really been like, okay, now you guys can be flourish as your own country. And here we are today. Uh, and they still have this, apparently Russia still has right now in a lab, the smallpox virus. And the WHO like allows it. So it's just strange that, you know, all those things could be true at once. You know, like we're, we think Russia is about to be, you know, be, invade Ukraine, that Putin's new Hitler, but like we're okay with them having the smallpox virus right now. It just, the, the whole thing is just so bizarre. I, I'm sorry. I just want to have told you. <laughs> You're very obsessed but, with smallpox right now because you've been doing yeah. a 20 hour <laughs> uh, Media Roots Radio patron exclusive podcast series about smallpox that I encourage everyone to listen to. Um, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of history that goes back between Russia and the U.S. after the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, as we know, we basically propped up Yeltsin and, you know, aided and abetted the destruction of the Soviet economy and the looting that took place after that, where life expectancy plummeted in Russia. It was a very, very horrible time in the 90s for average mm-hmm. Rus- Russian citizens. When 2001 happened, there was a moment where I think um, Russia tried to basically back the U.S. 
as as a lot of countries did. You know, I think at that moment, everyone was like, okay, this could be like our reset button to join the U.S. in the war on terrorism and to be sympathetic with the terrorist attack. And that's what Russia well, they're waging did. their own war on terror. That's what I'm too, saying like is they before. folded in. Yeah. yeah, they they basically were like it was kind of like an Israel type thing where they were like, OK, like we understand what this is. And so we're going to support your war in Afghanistan. That's what Russia said after 9-11. But then, of course, when the U.S. just immediately pivoted to Iraq, I think a lot of countries fell off. You know, we all know what happened when France famously didn't want to support the U.S. invasion of Iraq. We boycotted French wines. We renamed French fries Freedom Fries. It was a very babyish empire baby moment in this country. Um, But I think that that started to just make the U.S. more irritated with Russia, that they didn't just blindly back the U.S. in uh, in the Iraq war. And then it it just became increasingly more hostile. And this was the paradigm of the war on terror. And and it continued today. And I think that, you know, obviously it just continued to get more tenuous as the no-fly zone in Syria and all that shit just continued to unfold as a result of the U.S. outrageous criminality in the Middle East. Just going back to what you said about Israel and the war on terror. I mean, it is sort of weird how when you go back to the very beginning of this, it's like Russia was pioneering before we were um, sort of rooting out domestic not domestic terrorists but like sleeper cell like Chech Chechen terrorists um Muslim terrorists there was sort of like a proto war on terror thing that they were doing and then Moscow apartment buildings apartment building bombings um that happened I think in I want to say 1999 uh are very oddly reminiscent of 9-11 I mean so there I, I don't know what Russia was actually up to, but it does seem like they were sort of waging a, you know, similar thing. Wait, um, did the buildings explode into like pulverized confetti? No, not like that. Oh, okay. No, they didn't. It wasn't like that, but it was like, it was determined. A lot of Russians believe it was a false flag. Right. Apparently. Yeah. Um, but what's fascinating is, and we've talked about this before, is how the neocons here were very eager to call that a false flag. Like they were, I remember we, we were like really confused. We were like, wow, the neocons like talk about really yeah, openly yeah, yeah. how they think that Russians do like false flags. Like, and those are the, the neocons are the ones who a lot of people suspect might have actually been involved in like some kind of, you know, in some way in, in like the 9-11 attack. So it's fascinating to that juxtaposition, but like. Yeah. Russia now never got any, heat at all for like indiscriminately bombing you know isis just like a lot of leftists and stuff like didn't really talk much about um the u.s indiscriminately bombing isis in syria either so like russia and the u.s started doing that together and then what was also weird is like israel started doing it together with the three of them you know all three of them together that was a that's a that was a really weird situation and that sort of all you know kind of came together like right at the end of when i was making a very heavy agenda that there was just like this at first, we thought it was going to be like, oh, my God, this is going to escalate us into war even further. Like Russia and the United States could be on a collision course towards war, like physically in Syria. Like if a jet flies too close to a Russian jet or something, like it seemed really scary. And then all of a sudden, it just seemed like, oh, wait, maybe they're all just like working this all out. Like they did seem to be sort of like there was some moments where things got w- really intense and crazy. But for the most part, it did seem like a kind of this weird thing where it's like, how are all these countries working together? Yeah, to doing coordinate this? It was war against very ISIS. surreal. That was strange. Yeah. 
And so like that's, you know, that happened after all this shit. And then so I guess I just wrongly assumed, well, the Ukraine thing had largely died down. Those NATO, you know, military industrial complex forces, those that faction of DC war makers, think tankers, like they sort of gave up. That was my impression. And they got that what they, they had kind wanted. Of taken a back seat. They got what they wanted. They they successfully installed a Western friendly leader in Well, Ukraine. yeah, at the time, yeah. You know, you're absolutely right. But the the weird thing is it's like that's what started everything though. It's like you would think, yeah. Oh yeah, totally, right? But it's then that's like but then like literally they that's when like these NATO DC, you know, think tanker factions like really dug their claws in. No, you're right. They just made it all about Putin. It was like they smelled blood or as soon as they had like an in, that was their window. Yeah, exactly. Almost. Because it's not just about installing the the friendly leader. It's about what is this leader going to do once they're there. And so that and was the on, whole point to slowly close in on Russia. And also like the pendulum. It was like, it's like once you get, can get a Western leader in there, it's like, why not just keep pushing the pendulum in that direction like as hard as possible then? It's like, you got all that momentum. You might as well just take it to the fucking hill, and that's what they did. I mean, yeah, that's when we. That's when this almost became like so obvious that Vice was a propaganda outlet. Like, I almost feel like on some subconscious level, they like actually like damaged their whole brand, like over just that. How weird all that was. Yeah, you can't I don't walk think back. Anyone's from that. ever no, no one's ever going to be able to see Vice if they ever wanted to rebrand as like a serious, you know critic of, of war like say if another major war like iraq happens everyone's just gonna assume that they're like on board that they're like secretly in bed with the people who are doing it just like the, the ukraine thing was so fucking weird the way they covered it i've never seen anything like it before i mean could it be that they didn't actually know that they were nazis or do you think that well, they was just totally open and they were just that complicit I, that's the weird thing about well i think you're talking about simon otrovsky yeah. who is the main he was the one doing the Ukraine reports. I think he made it put out like 30, 40 reports at one point. And oh, I just wanted to tell a funny story about, I mean, I think Obama, I'm just going to straight up say it. I think the White House and the State Department were like literally having like meetings and con phone, uh, like conference calls with people at Vice all the time. Like 100%, I believe that it was very coordinated and it played out by the end of Obama's presidency where he literally hosts a jail special. Like- Live from jail with Obama and Shane Smith. It's like, what in the fuck is this shit? Like, you, you're letting Obama host a show on Vice? Like, what is happening here? Like, while he was still president, it didn't even... I was just like, completely blown away by that. I don't even remember Fox News having George W. Bush do that. You know, like, anything like that. Yeah, and it was just uh, him so that totally patting himself like on the egregious. back. It was basically just him jerking Obama off for, like, an hour. Yeah. And so... Yeah, and it would have been bad enough if it was a softball interview, but it seemed like this was like a propaganda program from Obama's mind. Like he want this was his special. It's like, what is this? And so that's, you know, it became so obvious. But Simon Oftarovsky, the flagship guy, by the time he's embedded with the Azov Battalion, which is probably the most infamous neo-Nazi militia that worked with the Ukrainian army, by the time he's embedded with them, he is literally downplaying and like whitewashing their Nazi connections in the middle of like the two episode arc that he's embedded with them. And it's fascinating. And one scene he's talking about how, yeah, there's some people in this group, you know, who say, um, or there's people who talk about Azov as if they're secret, like fascists, or they might have like Nazi sympathies, but 
the Azov Battalion have a pretty unhealthy obsession with uh, German history. A lot of them wear uh, West German uniforms with German flags, have German-style helmets, um, say Zig instead of hello to each other and listen to Ramstein, which is why they are so controversial because they kind of help the Russians build the Ukrainians or Nazis narrative. So this is what makes me think for sure he was like deliberately covering it up because he says that, but then also is like standing in front of the double lightning bolts on like one of their vans, like a military van of the Azov. He's doing a stand-up interview like near it, not directly in front of it. He literally just makes no comment on it at all. Like that would have been the time to do the, the comment about the Nazi thing and to like actually address it. But I almost feel like he didn't even notice it or they had noticed it and just didn't think pe people would just recognize it as a Nazi symbol. And they just kept like powering forward on this segment. And it's very, very strange because it actually came comes up. I mean, it's not like they just don't mention anything. He brings it up and then like whitewashes in it using like hipster lingo that only like a someone who reads like pitchfork.com would understand. Right. So my question is why have people canceled me or like Antifa people who are out there like trying to link me with like Nazi associations because I was forced to interview Weave when I didn't know he was a Nazi 10 years ago. Yet this motherfucker who literally whitewashed entire Nazi brigade, an entire oh, Nazi brigade. Oh, everybody on Vice by proxy. And everyone yeah. fucking loves this guy and thinks that he's a hero and like a like a daring war reporter. It's like, dude, this is the most gullible shit in the world. Like, you cannot actually excuse this away and claim ignorance at this point. Like you said, several times it was brought up. The viewpoints were understood. If you don't know what a fucking SS symbol is, then maybe you shouldn't fucking be there. And this is the thing. I think he did know. And I think he just got caught up in the moment and was yeah. putting out so much content and vice. Maybe it even slipped by the vice editors. You know, maybe they could well, have used is... another clip. I think they would have if they know if someone editing that right. would have recognized that symbol, they would have. Well, here's here's the problem with just a lot bad. of this like embedded reporting, whether it's the Tigray Liberation Force in Ethiopia or ISIS strongholds in Syria or the Azov Battalion in Ukraine. When you go into these territories and you literally just uncritically parrot what like the rebel fighters are telling you, like that's not doing your due diligence. You can't just go mm -hmm. and blindly take the people who are like on one side and just take their word for it. It's just crazy that this is the way that the U.S. corporate media was covering all of these conflicts. And this is this is what happens in Venezuela with the opposition there. I mean, it happens mm -hmm. everywhere that the U.S. deems an enemy. It's like you take all the people who are fighting the government's words at face value without any further research at all and then just call it a day. Can I just finish something really Absolutely. quick about Simon Otorowski? <laughs> he, okay, so it was funny because he's there, you know, with the Russian, or, you know, there with the Ukrainian fighters the whole time, you know, up alongside of them while they're actually sometimes engaged in firefights with these supposed pro-Russian separatists. And he probably, I'm sure Vice or the White House or whoever was like, you know, really getting behind this programming, they really probably wanted some example of like some kind of Russian atrocity or something that would make it seem really obvious where the Russians were being particularly brutal against the Ukrainians. But instead, the most like violent thing that happens to him on camera, Abby, is a fucking like Ukrainian military jet, like flying really low past like just like a crowd of like Ukrainian people just like fleeing down a highway 
for some reason, like Ukrainian military fighter jet, like thought it was a wise idea to just like almost like buzz the top of the heads of this crowd, like as an intimidating act, like just scaring their own citizenry for some reason. And it looks like it almost like could have like fucking like killed people. And Simon Otrowski like almost gets clipped by this jet. And it's just, that's like literally the most violent scene that he captures. Now, what's really funny to me, uh, I don't know, maybe funny is not the right word, is that he eventually got kidnapped, allegedly, by Russian separatists. And nobody actually captured this on camera. Nobody really like managed to capture any of this footage where he got ended up getting kidnapped. But it became a Vice news story that was getting hyped up by a lot of the people in Vice and sort of people in the State Department. I remember even like Melinda Herring and people sort of adjacent to some of these PNAC foreign policy initiative neocons promoting this story that Simon Ovtorovsky of Vice got kidnapped because he was like not towing the Russian line and they had to like get him out of there because the Vice coverage, that could mean on one hand that maybe, uh, you know, Vice was really sort of like pushing holes in the Russian narrative and like, why were they? Like, why, why, would, why, is, why was Vice taking so much of like a side in that direction? But then Simon Otrowski, he just sort of disappears in the... Like, he's kidnapped, apparently, right? He's not talking. There's barely any media coverage about him for, like, two weeks. The show goes off the air. And you almost don't hear anything about it. And then what's really was really sad for him is when he got released from being a prisoner, uh, he comes on this, like, private plane. He lands at what looks like a set-up press conference, all set up with, like, maybe, like, 30, 40 chairs at this airport tarmac, basically. He walks out all disheveled looking from the airplane, all unshaven, almost like as if he's fucking like a prisoner of war from like a like Jessica Lynch or something. And he literally goes to the podium and there's like two people in the crowd. Like, it, it was like, almost like, like all this for nothing. Like this guy like basically was like a State Department shill. It seemed like he actually did get like kidnapped for a bit. And then like Obama or whoever was like hyping all this shit up, just like pulled the plug and didn't give a fuck. Like when he came back, like no one gave him any press. <laughs> he got like no fanfare. He was, they stopped using him as like a propaganda tool. And at that point, it's just like, fuck, let's just not even like fuck this shit. Like it was almost like they pulled the plug on the whole vice media thing at the time. Um, and I know that was not that interesting of a story, but. Jesus Christ, please know more about Simon Trotsky. <laughs> okay. Oh, Tim Pool was also embedded in Ukraine, FYI, and he did a Reddit AMA about it. If you want nice. to check out that, <laughs> I'm sure that that's extremely worthwhile to check out. So, what's yeah. been going on now is months long hype of a war drive basically dominating corporate news that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. This has been many, many months now. As I said, it's even dominating Olympics coverage. Uh, it's pretty shocking. Oh, and by the way, the last Olympics during the summer, how fucked up was that, that like the Russian athletes were like not allowed to display that they were from Russia because of the doping scandal stuff. It's like, hmm, I find it really hard to believe that Russia is the only country yes. that has this doping scandal. And then you're like removing their ability to actually get awards <laughs> for their country is like a punishment. Too. It makes, no, no, it makes, it's so convenient that it's like, <laughs> Russia just gets hit with this huge doping scandal that like, you know, I mean, do you, I don't know if you know the depths of it. There was like a documentary on like Netflix, I think called Icarus, where it's like people got like get killed and, and there's like hitmen taking people out. It was like, dude, come on. Like, are we really going to do this again? 
anyways. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty crazy. I remember that documentary and I knew that it was going to be bad, so I didn't check it out. But so everyone's been saying Russia's about to invade Ukraine. So where did this come from? Where did this come from? Well, uh, Zelensky, who's the new prime minister, I guess, of Ukraine right now, um, basically he said that the U.S. was talking to him about how Russia was going to invade last fall. I don't know where the U.S. got that from, if Ukrainian officials didn't seem to be privy to that knowledge. But so the U.S., I guess, had talks with Zelensky last fall that said that the chances of this happening was 80 percent, 80 percent. So now um, Zelensky, after so after that meeting, apparently Zelensky started hyping this up in his own political circles and to the public of Ukraine to try to gain political capital. So because Zelensky basically used the opportunity to get, quote, more aid and more attention and played along with this U.S. cultivation of this imminent Russian invasion narrative, he basically exploited this U.S. talking point to get, I don't know how much, how many fucking millions of dollars in weapons that the U.S. just gave Ukraine. That's what a source close to Zelensky is saying. So it's a lot of what people were arguing recently, that Zelensky was manipulating the situation and basically it resulted in such outrageous panic and hysteria hysteria that now it's backfired. Um, Apparently, Russia was just moving troops around in their own sphere of influence, which they do frequently. And just think about how often the U.S. does this with its military. I mean, God, how many fucking war games that are simulating like the invasion of China? How many troop deployments are happening at any given day all around the planet? Hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from U.S. borders. So it's just funny that the reaction, like kind of a uniform reaction from the U.S. political establishment is like, holy like Russia's moving troops around. What are we going to do about it? Well, we need to do something, right? Well, we got to do something because Russia is going to prepare to invade Ukraine and we have to do something about it. And you even saw Biden going out there and being like, yeah, we're not going to do anything if there's just like some minor incursion. And everyone was like, Biden's a fucking coward. Can you believe it? Biden's not going to do anything. And then Biden had to come back out and be like, actually, we are going to do something. And then that's when you saw 3000 U.S. soldiers be sent to Ukraine, as well as tons of weapons, lethal aid, quote unquote, was sent to Ukraine now. So all of these ballistic missiles, and I don't even know what kind of weaponry they are, but I'm assuming it's pretty fucking dangerous and threatening to Russians who live within two to three minutes of flight times of these missiles being launched. And if you go back to the end of the fall of the Soviet Union, basically there was a lot of diplomatic negotiations and Cold War era treaties and guarantees. Basically, there was an architecture in place to de-escalate tensions. A lot of people may not understand the history that our parents lived through, which was several years of the imminent thought of like nuclear holocaust. And so, of course, a lot of people were very worried about this continuing. And so, of course, when the collapse of the Soviet Union was like a breath where people were like, okay, can we prevent us from getting to that place again where we feel like there's a mutual assured destruction mentality that's playing into every single thing that goes into world affairs? So there was this framework, uh, diplomatic options to basically encourage debate and a forum to engage 
between these two powers. But basically, what ended up happening is um, the U.S. abandoning any sort of diplomatic route. And I'm I'm not exaggerating. I'm not just being like, oh, Russia tried to engage with diplomacy and the U.S. didn't. Like, literally, look it up. All the fucking treaties, all of the, the diplomatic options were abandoned by the U.S. Okay, so in 1988, Gorbachev and Reagan actually signed the nuclear armed treaty that banned both countries from having weapons that could strike each other in five minutes. Trump got rid of the treaty in 2018. Yes, Putin puppet Trump abandoned that treaty. So all of wow. these things have have really reached this this fever pitch. Like every single administration has kind of like further rolled back all of the shit that was preventing us from getting to the place that we're at now. And what you see now is the two red lines that Russia put out uh, years ago, which was do not allow Ukraine to be part of NATO and which includes the NATO expansion right up to Russia's border. And also, do not use Ukraine as a staging ground to foment and instigate war, which means troop deployments and, like, huge amounts of weaponry that could reach Russian cities within minutes. It's like, dude, I mean, I know that this thought experiment is super obvious to our listeners, but it's like, just imagine Russia doing this on the border of Canada or Mexico. It absolutely makes no sense that this is somehow our moral right and authority to do so. It is absolutely unnecessary. The only way that anything will happen now is, is if the U.S. makes something happen. Because Russia has said over and over again, this is completely made up. Even Ukrainian officials have, have defended Russia and been like, the U.S. is making this up. The Ukrainian like Defense Department, their equivalent over there, has said, this is not happening. Stop doing this. And you even see U.S. corporate outlets now trying to debunk Ukrainian officials being like, oh, no, 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 like they're lying. Like it is happening. It's like, dude, what is going on? You have a CNN reporter on the ground on the border of Russia being like, I don't know. I just interviewed all these people at this open flea market and it seems like no one thinks that there's a problem. Like no one thinks that Russia is about to invade them. It's like maybe because they fucking aren't. Maybe you should take a cue from the people that you're interviewing and do your goddamn job and not act so bewildered that you've been spoon-fed propaganda from the State Department that you're just unquestioningly repeating. They don't want war, dude. You can't question these narratives, though, Robbie. I'm sure you heard the story about that German general who dared to say that we should respect Russia, and he had to resign resign from his position for simply saying, hey, Russia is an important country that maybe we should respect them and try to engage diplomatically before just piling on to all this insanity. So again, the way that this is being covered is completely hyperbolic, cartoonish, and totally one-sided, full of distortions and lies, no context, no perspective at all of the Russian perspective, the Ukrainian perspective, and also the context of how did we get here? What is the U.S. doing to actually facilitate this conflict and crisis? What gives the U.S. the right to do this? Same right we have always had, baby. <laughs> Fucking, it's, our, it's our planet. We're, it's the American way. It's the American empire. Um, but like one of the... I, I have a couple takeaways mm -hmm. from the situation that may be not exactly what people want to hear me comment on, but I think that they're worth commenting on. One of them in particular is this strange new rhetoric that the U.S. is using against Russia 
where an actual AP reporter, it's the same one that used to be a little confrontational with them during the first go around in Ukraine, I forget his name, uh, who called them out on spinning a narrative that kind of sounds like an InfoWars narrative. He called out, I think, Jake Sullivan to his face at a press conference because this is what they actually fucking said. Uh, Jake Sullivan said that the U.S. was watching for the possibility that there is a pretext or a false flag operation to kick off the Russian action in which Russian intelligence service conducts some kind of attack on Russian proxy forces in eastern Ukraine or on Russian citizens. So Jake Sullivan of the White House is basically saying that Russia is going to stage a false flag attack as an excuse to invade Ukraine. How fucking funny is that, that the U.S. is now saying that about other countries when we, like, the U.S. has literally done that, like, historically, so historically. So that, to me, is like an extra new, I mean, I don't remember anyone saying anything like that during the first Ukraine thing. Do you? No, no. That's a, that's a pretty bizarre new level of rhetoric. And Russia was also saying the same thing about the U.S. only a few months ago, I think, that we were going to stage something as an excuse to make it seem like they had done something in Ukraine. So things are getting quite meta. I think things are getting even more meta. And maybe this is just us living in a more, you know, ungrounded, more free-floating, like, ecosystem of media nowadays where it's like, this is now the rhetoric that states use against each other, like saying they're going to do like a false flag thing. It just gets very meta and and strange. And I've, I've totally forgot what else I was going to say. So if you had something else to go, say, go ahead. No, yeah. I mean, I honestly think we should put a clip of that in there, in here, because it is one of the most surreal things that have has happened. Very meta, weird, mm-hmm. like art imitating life, kind of life imitating art kind of shit. It's really weird, man. Russia continues to engage uh, in disinformation uh, well, campaigns. You made an allegation that they might do that. Have they actually done it? Uh, what we know, Matt, is what we what I have just said that they have engaged in this activity, well, uh, in this planning well, activity. Wait, what but, activity. But let me let me because because obviously this is not this is not the first time we've made uh, these reports public. You'll remember that just a few well, weeks I, ago. I'm sorry, you, made, made, made what report public? If you let me finish, I will okay. tell you what report we made okay. public. Uh, we told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already well, taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is, what is the evidence that they play? I mean, this is like crisis actors, really. This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Matt, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, know. Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. No, you made a series of allegations and statements. Would you, would you like us to print it out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for that, yourself. That's not evidence, Ned. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. <laughs> what would you like, Matt? I, I would like to see some proof that you that, 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 that you can show that... that 
Matt, you have that, been that, that shows you, that that, that you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Ned, I've been doing this for a I long know that time, was my point. As, you as, you as have you, know. you you have been doing this for quite a while. You know I that have. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in, in a means in we do and so I, we do so with an eye to protecting that, that sources and methods. Is not going to fall. I, I remember a lot of things. So where, where where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we have it's declassified. It's not the format; it's the content. I'm sorry you don't like the content. I'm sorry it's you. I'm sorry like you are doubting this. the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. No, I, I, what I'm telling you is that this is information that's available to us. We are making it available to you uh, in order uh, for a couple reasons. One is to attempt to deter the Russians from going ahead with this activity. Two, in the event we're not able to do that, in the event the Russians do go ahead with this, to make it clear as day, to lay bare the fact that this has always been an attempt on the part of the Russian Federation to fabricate a pretext. Yeah, but you don't have any, any evidence to back it up other than what you're saying. You know that when we make information, uh, intelligence information public, we do so uh, in, a, in a way that protects sensitive sources and methods. You also know that we do so, we declassify information only when we're confident in that information. If you doubt, if you doubt the, the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, uh, of other governments, and want to uh, you know, find uh, solace in information that uh, the solace? Russians are putting out, uh, that is, uh, that <laughs> is for wanna... you to do. What's interesting that's different between this situation versus the first, you know, sort of like escalation in Ukraine um, is that you don't see all that like weird, like um, online Russia, Putin, anti-Putin, like think tank circuit, like firing on all cylinders like they were during the first Ukraine thing. Like you don't see Bellingcat blasting out content every single day monitor you know like updating people on like where you russian troops are and where you know their weapons are or like satellite photos of certain things you don't see that right now and that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe i for some reason that machinery is not being like fully activated which makes me think that this is more of a sudden not like planned out escalation like this sort of seemed like it kind of came suddenly Whereas the first one seemed like it was very well-oiled machine, like everything was like ready to go. You had all that, like the vice thing alone was just like very coordinated and just seemed like all prepared to, you know, they had this massive network of people already there and embedded and stuff. And I don't know, I, I don't know if that means anything to you, but it gives me a little bit of hope that maybe this won't escalate any further. But I don't know. I mean, it is it is really scary, like what you're saying I do think there's a lot less protocols in place. There's a lot less reason now for us to have a detente with countries like Russia and China just because of how much the rhetoric has escalated. Well, it is And that's just a scary direction to be going in. I mean, that's the trend and that's fucking, that's, that's terrible. Yeah, it's like, even, wow. if, even if we're just trying to poke the bear over and over again and just make Russia look horrible and like seize the opportunities that we can to, you know, close in on them more and more it's so irresponsible and kind of psychotic actually because wars don't always happen planned out you know war can happen by accident it could totally snowball into a full war and is that really what we want like 
I know that people like knock down that idea because it's like, oh, well, we're, what would we gain? It's like, dude, I don't know, but I don't think that's how the foreign policy strategists are thinking about this. No one is writing policy prescriptions about de-escalation. It's always what else can we do? How else can we hype up the threat? How, how many more weapons need to be? How many more nukes do we need to like counter Russia? It's that's yeah. that's what these people are talking about constantly. Or even more strange, this sort of anomalous idea of like showing Putin that we're serious. Yeah, you know, you even right. hear like people like the Kagan family using rhetoric like that's like, what does that actually mean? So you're just like, you just want to like be like a loud barking dog to like see who like a staring contest to see who looks away first. Yeah, is no, that exactly. Really, what this comes down to, because that just sounds like you're literally like playing chicken, you fucking psychos. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? That's what it fucking boils down to, you fucking psychotic motherfuckers. It really does. And, that, and to have that rhetoric come out of like the intellectual think tank circuit, it's like, dude, so it's just basically just at the most base level it gets, really. It's like there's nothing more really to it. I'm hopeful that it doesn't get as bad, that, that it sort of dies down. But I am, I, I think I'm just increasingly worried about, you know, even we have this whole new lane now where it seems like it's become sort of mainstreamified where now a lot of Republicans are sort of coming out of the woodwork and saying, let's let's not go after Russia. Why are we wasting all this time on Russia? But like what we need to be focusing on is like China and what they're doing in Taiwan. And that's not that's not a pivot that's that surprising. It's like we knew what Tucker's program was doing. We knew what a lot of these fake right populists were doing. We knew what all the neocons who were whispering in Trump's ear were doing when they would fill his mind with all this anti-China rhetoric at the same time he was, you know, speaking about populism and and fighting the elites. Like we knew that there was some call it an op, call it whatever, there was some strategy to mixing together that. Because now it's like, well, what is that strategy? Let's say it was a strategy. What is it amounted to? Well, it's amounted to basically like on each party flank, you have the Democrats gunning for Russia and wanting to like escalate things in Ukraine. And then you have all the Republicans talking constantly about China, drumming up all this paranoia and hysteria about them, and then actually saying that they would, you know, wage war for Taiwan. You know, bipartisan foreign policy was a thing only how long ago, like eight years ago or before Trump, it's like, that's going to become a thing again. And now it's like, we're in a more dangerous spot for that to become like how it was in 2014. You look back at the original vote for the $300 million weapon supplemental to Ukraine, almost every Republican voted for that. So to think that now they're all acting like they're against escalating things in Ukraine, it's like, where did that even come from? I don't know. It's sort of odd. Uh, but it's just, it's going, it's a trend and it's going to trend back in the other direction eventually. Actually, you even see people already sort of attacking Biden from the, you know, saying he was weak against Putin, like, like people from like the populist rights fear started doing that during all this again. So it's like, that's how quickly they can shift back into that mindset. And then at that point, when it's just all, when, when everything's cornered in from all sides, like when it's a bipartisan and you have all this escalatory rhetoric against China and Russia, I think that's when, that's a really scary spot. And that's when I'll start actually, frankly, worrying about like nuclear Armageddon again. Like if we get further down this road, you know, if it's like two years from now and it's like three, four times worse than this, I'm, it's going to be really scary. I don't know. Then I don't know how you come back from that. Well, the U.S. You know, isn't going to stop. That's the thing. It's like, it, it's not going to stop. And so it is just a matter of time before something does escalate into who's who's going to shoot the first shot. Um, 
you know, and it doesn't matter. All this doesn't matter because it's just going to become about retaliation at that point. And it almost feels like that's what the U.S. is trying to do. I mean, 100 percent agree. That's here because here's what's so weird, Abby. It's like we they literally there was an apparatus of the deep state, call it whatever you want, that was trying to plant this idea in people's minds that Russia had like basically hacked our elections, socially engineered the election, helped the president get into office. And so it was basically like a shadow government ran by them. Like, why did they want to do that to people? Maybe that was setting the stage for what you're talking about. Like that they actually seem like they want to initiate a seriously deadly conflict for some reason now. So like, maybe that was just a setup for that. Like, but that's crazy. Like, why would they do do that? (laughs) The people steering the ship are completely mad. But I wanted to say something really quickly about your point about partisanship. Yeah, I mean, it really just blows in the wind. And that's what's so sad about this idea of, you know, people who are on the right who are, quote unquote, anti-interventionists, but did not call out Trump's interventionism, did not call out the exacerbation and escalation of all the wars under Trump and just kind of take took his words at face value. And you see this kind of mentality not really sticking um And it really just doesn't feel genuine at all, because how could you be on this China war drive while while talking about how Russiagate was such a distraction and it's just escalating tensions with Russia? It's like, how could you not apply that same logic to all of the U.S. enemies? And it really just makes me feel like there's a disingenuous nature to the right wing's claim about, you know, picking and choosing what they want to rally behind in terms of interventionism and it depends on who's the president pretty much and so yeah you know, it's totally yeah. fake dude <laughs> it's all it, it kind of you know it has hints of another rhetorical trap that was used mostly by a sphere of liberalism during the war on terror as a critique against the iraq war and i'm sure you remember this very well abby if this is about terrorism why don't we spend more resources on afghanistan that's the smart war I mean, that was a, it's a variation of the, it's a smart war versus a dumb war. And that's kind of like what the right wing is trying to push with this, like, you know, we should be going after China, not Ukraine. And I remember when Tucker first started pushing the so-called anti-war frame on his program, he did it specifically with the framing of why are we going after Assad in Syria and we should be going after Maduro in Venezuela? It's like, wait a second, like, whoa, so this is really like some kind of weird op framing trap for regime change. So why is Tucker getting all these accolades for being anti-war? Like that is clearly a manipulative framing trap. And one that I think we need to be very, very cautious of that, you know, that it's infecting not just like right populism, the entire sphere of it, but it's also affecting like some, you know, these quasi leftists who are, you know, all just anti-woke and on Substack and and rumble now too. Um, I don't see very many of them at all pushing back anymore. Maybe some of them were for a second pushing back against the China stuff at all. And I'm just like, at this one, I'm worried, like, are they just so, have they just gotten so much of like a right wing following that it's like the, now they can't even say anything. Like it's just, it's cause it's, it's surreal. Like it's while it's getting worse, they're getting more silent and it's just like, Oh shit. Yeah. You know, and all, any of these people in the think tanks, the people who buy into it, you know, our obligations to NATO, all this stuff, like nobody really cares about that stuff. It's all just being sort of forced in there. And it's just obvious when you look at all the countries that NATO absorbed, 
after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was all the like old Soviet clients. Yeah, exactly. Like, why would they have done that? I mean, it really sends a really obvious message. It's like, we don't trust Russia after the Soviet Union. And we basically just want to make sure we have them like completely surrounded. And that's kind of what we did. And encroaching them with like nuclear threats too, because all the NATO armed powers basically are associated with the fact that nuclear states like the U.S. will defend them at any cost. And so it comes with well, strings attached. That's exactly what I was, I mean, I forgot to mention earlier, why was this missile defense shield at the very end of the Bush administration being put in Poland? Because of NATO. Poland's a NATO member. And that's sort of like, that sends a really clear message. It's like, of all the places we could have put one, it's in Poland? Like, I mean, come on. Obviously trying to send a message to Russia or make them like sweat or panic. And why are we doing that? Like, why was the Bush administration kicking off that ball? I think it's just for the same reason they did all their other crazy escalatory neocon shit. It's, it serves all the same ends at, in the end, which is U.S. hegemony, putting other countries in their place symbolically, and feeding like this beast of the military-industrial complex. And just creating more, re you know, even when we're not going into war, it's like if the threat of war continues to loom, then it's like more reason to just buy, you know, have enough weapons, build up all those fucking armaments, dude. So these companies will still keep making money, even if there's not an active war happening. Okay, so we're picking up the recording again as well um, on the Ukraine part because a lot of stuff has happened since we last recorded and we wanted to get this in before we released it. But, um, Abby, did you know tonight or a few hours ago, Putin invaded Ukraine, uh, according to Michael McFall, according to a bunch of other people who are sort of in the U.S. State Department circuit. So what are your comments on that? There are two territories, I guess, similarly to Crimea that are like considered autonomous and were supposed to remain autonomous under the Minsk agreement in 2015 to try to stave off the war, basically. I was going on in Donetsk. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just funny that none of this is discussed and it's just Ukraine is just this homogenous country that's painted in the media as like Putin is constantly threatening the sovereignty of Ukraine. It's like there's no context at all about the U.S.-backed coup, about the fact that like how crazy it is to cross all of these red lines that were clearly laid out, sending all of this lethal weaponry and just amassing thousands of troops right on Russia's border and then acting like Putin is Hitler for like moving troops around. I mean, but it is a little bit more complicated than we're hearing. And I just can't believe anything that I read in corporate media about foreign policy. And so we'll just have to wait and see what the truth is. But I guarantee you it's not what this motherfucker said. You know, Putin's speech, like from yesterday, I think it was from maybe last night or this morning, like it was a speech that, uh, that he would have never made when Obama was in office about the situation. It did seem like more, the rhetoric has escalated from the Russian side. That much is clear. You know, it's like, what is this? If it's not an invasion, which it's clearly not like a, an invasion, you know, it does seem like some kind of symbolic gesture in sort of the face of the United States, you know, during this sort of weird escalatory face-off. So, I mean, that's the loosest interpretation I can give it because it's, it's too early to say what's really going on. But we have to remember back when the original incursion happened, it was like basically the U.S. government took the stance that Russia was waging hybrid warfare. They had invaded the whole time. 
So like at what point did the US government decide that that was no longer going to be the narrative and that like Russia was not currently occupying Ukraine? And that seemed to be a more open-ended and effective narrative during the Obama era to just like dial up and down the pressure whenever they wanted to be like, oh, there's some hacker, you know, they're they like hacked some munition thing that the Ukrainians had because they're like meddling in, you know, the Russians tear off their insignias. We don't even know what separatists are like actual Russian troops and which ones aren't. So it had this ambiguity to it, but now it's like it is a very specific claim. Biden's saying that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And if they don't, what happens? How what is the US side gonna do? Like, are they back themselves into a corner? You know? It's like the the whole thing is just so it just seems more that's what I mean by more sloppy. Like, what happens at the end of this? You're acting like there's some sort of like mea culpa like whenever the U.S. fucks up, but it's like they just move on to the next narrative, you know, like they just won't yeah. do anything to take accountability and be like, you know what, we were wrong about this and that. It's like they'll just reshape the narrative into something else and they'll just pretend that Putin did because of whatever the fuck just happened today, they're going to just say we were right. Putin did this, but then they'll somehow downplay the response that's needed because of this and that, I think. But what's interesting is amid all of this war hysteria, it's just so funny that the Western media continues to propagate the Azov Battalion. <laughs> like you saw that old lady, like the sniper, like training with the snipers and stuff. It's just like, what the fuck? Like you would think that even if they were too dumb to know that in 2014, it's like now everyone knows that these people are neo-Nazis, dude. Like, what are you doing? I was on Status Coup and Tina Borg, she was sort of suggesting that the neo-Nazi accusation about Ukraine is overblown. And I could get with her on that wavelength because, you know, like I've always found that jihadi thing in Syria has been sort of overused by anti-imperialists. But in the case of the, the Azov Battalion, there is no mistaking the fact that it's not just that they're blatantly a neo-Nazi, like actual integral part of like the Ukrainian, like, army in some form you know they're not just like some random unofficial militia like they actually became an official part of the national guard in the ukraine but what's also crazy which really says a lot is what you said as they keep being the representatives like why was vice even like hooked up with azov if they weren't such an important flank of this why would they the media even be covering this old lady like why does this keep happening why would the u.s government be so intent on sending some of that $300 million to Ukraine that they would like have the bill changed in secret. I mean, all that stuff does speak to the fact that it does seem like Azov seems really important to whatever this fucking bullshit is, which is actually really, I mean, that's the disturbing thing. But this specifically, the fact that Azov Battalion is seemingly linked up with like this US apparatus is very weird. I mean, it is. I mean, they did change the bill in secret so that the money still went to Azov. I mean... How much of that money went to Azov? Like, why did they even have to do that? It's just so funny that I know I'm just sort of going in circles, but. I think there's a Nazi problem in the government, too. You know, like, I don't mm -hmm. think that this is just the armed forces. I think it's reflected the far right is pretty representative. And it's just so, again, like the hypocrisy is just like mind bending because of how 
fake obsessed the liberals are about Nazism and associations with Trump. And they are quick to call everyone neo-Nazis and white supremacists. It's like a catch-all for fucking anyone who's like a conservative, which is so stupid. And at the same time, these motherfuckers are sending actual weapons to Nazis. I know it's such like an overplayed talking point, but it still is like worth just mentioning because of just how crazy it is. <laughs> like, well, no, I mean, you may raise a really good point because some of those same people will be the ones you know, obsessing over a lot of the street uh, protesters who appear neo-Nazi. And they're the same ones who won't notice the, like, the Ukrainian Nazi tattoos on some of those people. Like, some of those, like, more crypto-Nazis in, like, the in Portland and stuff, they'll actually don the Ukrainian, like, Azov symbols. And apparently there's actually neo-Nazis from the U.S. who go over to Ukraine who train. Not specifically with Azov, but other, like, neo-Nazi militias. And then come back here. So that's a thing, apparently. Um, and that makes sense. It's like a lot of those people do seem to have like military train. I mean, neo-Nazis have long been obsessed with like, mili- you know, being militarized. So it makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. It's like what <clears throat> what's done out in open is just what we've been doing for so long. What the CIA has been doing, funding very far right fascist groups to curb the infectious struggle for liberation, to to trample any sort of leader that's not, you know, under the complete thumb of control of the U.S. And so it the trend continues. It's just more interesting now because of this kind of superficial wokeness that's been just wholeheartedly adopted by the liberal establishment. And it's just like, how on earth are the same people doing these panels about how we need to, like, do something about Ukraine and, like, supporting Biden's measures there and then just in the same, in the next breath, they're like talking about, you know, the problem with the growing threat of the far right terrorism here in the U.S. Well, thank you so much for listening to Media Roots Radio. There's so much more to go into. I have way more information about oh, about Biden's drone policy that we could talk about next time. Of course, what's going on in Afghanistan, the recent Syria raid that uh, allegedly took out this ISIS leader. So. A lot more to go into, Robbie. We'll have to follow up on the next one. Yeah, yeah. There's so much to cover. Every time we do these, I just realize how much we like there is to say. It just seems like there's everything just feels so accelerated and over the top these days. <laughs> there's always something new to talk about. I know, but it's great talking to you, Abby. And please consider becoming a subscriber to Media Roots Radio at uh, Patreon.com/slash Media Roots Radio. Uh, you get access to all of our bonus content, our premium content. We release one premium episode only for subscribers uh, to our Patreon per month. Uh, and right now we're doing a series on the very memory hold history of uh, the Bush administration rolling out a smallpox vaccination program for all civilians in the United States based on this idea that terrorists were probably going to attack us at some point with smallpox so we might as well all get vaccinated a pre-event vaccination if you will um it would be like asking the entire population to get vaccinated for a disease that had been eradic you know that's been eradicated for 20 years with without giving them any reason to believe that this was an imminent thing at all just basically being like trust us we think this could happen take this vaccine and it's going to actually kill like like hundreds of people but we don't know who it's going to kill but we really want you to take this. And that's what they did. So if you're interested in that history and it's got a lot of parallels and interesting resonance with today's time period, obviously because of COVID, 
check that out patreon.com slash media roots radio and thanks for listening everybody take care